Hello everyone, welcome to Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and hopefully interviews. We'll get to that later. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Today's episode is going to cover a lot of quantum computing fundamentals, and even if you think you know the basics, stay tuned. You might just learn something new. In this episode, I'll be going over everything from what a qubit is, to how we can theoretically use qubits to destroy standard cryptography, and why we can't do that quite yet. This is the first ever full-length episode of Quantum Computing Now, Intro to Quantum Computing. Alright, first of all, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. Richard Feynman once said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. That saying has been held true for the last however long it's been since he said that, because I didn't look that up. Um, that goes for me. That goes for everyone. Richard Feynman was a brilliant theoretical physicist, um, brilliant person in general. Even he didn't understand quantum mechanics. I'm just a dumb kid. I'm not going to understand it either. Take everything I say with a large grain of salt. So, that said, this is all going to be very broad. It's going to skip a lot of parts. It's going to get stuff wrong. I'm going to do all that broad parts wrong. So yell at me. You can either do that literally. Uh, you can leave voice messages. There's a link in the description. Or you can do it digitally via text on Twitter at one Ethan Hansen. All right, let's get started. So for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to assume that you know about classical computing, specifically what binary is, what a logic gate is, how you use logic gates in computing, the idea that you can combine logic gates to do computations. If you don't already know about all that, there's a really good intro series from Crash Course on YouTube. The link is in the description. Uh, but if you're all about that podcast life, just look up Intro to Computing or How Do Computers Work. I haven't listened to any podcasts or podcast episodes about that specifically, but I do know that countless exist. There's got to be one that's good for you, that other people like, that's got good ratings, all that good stuff. So, once you've got the boring classical stuff out of the way, we can move on to the quantum stuff. The reason you came here, the fun stuff. So, where do we start? For this series, I think that the best place to start is what in the world is a qubit? A qubit, spelled Q-U-B-I-T, is short for quantum bit, and bit itself is short for binary digit. So a qubit is a quantum binary digit. What does that mean? So binary digits are able to be 0 or 1. So like you have digits in, say, a phone number, that can be from 0 to 9, a binary digit, binary meaning two states, means that you can have only zero or one. This is this is the basis of all classical computing and more or less the basis of quantum computing. Qubits, quantum bits, are able to do weird things that a classical bit cannot. And we use those weird properties, we harness those properties in order to do computations that you really can't do with a classical computer. So, a misconception is that qubits are continuous, that somehow they're able to represent in a meaningful way that we can use weird states where they're somewhere between 0 and 1. 
And a lot of the times the phrase that you'll hear is that they can be in many states all at the same time. This is a misconception in that, yes, you they can technically be in multiple states at the same time, but because they're binary, it's two states, so they can be in what's called a superposition of one and zero, those two states. It can be in a superposition of two states at the same time, not like a bunch of states. They're not continuous. It's a weird continuous called superposition that's hard to understand. Um, and yeah, the, the big takeaway there is that even though they are in those many states all at the same time that are sort of combinations of zero and one, it really boils down to probability and complicated mathematics. So a superposition means that it has a probability of being in a certain state at a certain time. So what does that mean? When you put a quantum bit, a qubit, into, say, a superposition of being 0 and 1 evenly, then it has a 50% chance of when you observe it, it jumps into one of those states, 0 or 1, 50% of the time. Um, so, yeah, to, to reiterate, let me go back a bit. Popular science bloggers, YouTubers, everyone says that it is in multiple states at once, but it's not, at least not when we can get usable data from it. So to reiterate, it's not in multiple states at once. It has a probability of being in multiple states at once. So when you observe the state, it collapses the superposition. That means that, okay, we don't know what state it's in. We're not observing it. It's like if you are looking away from something, so your phone. Um, if you look away from it, I know it's hard. It's really hard to look away from that bright, shiny little thing with moving lines that makes your eyes want to look right at it. But if you look away, you're not observing it. And then if you look at it, the superposition collapses. And let's say you were to take your phone and you were going to put it in the superposition of being face up, so screen up, or screen down. So you put it on the table, say you flip it in the air, you don't know whether it landed face up or face down. You're not observing it. And it's in a superposition of those two states. And then you look at it, and it collapses. Those probabilities will collapse down into it being either screen up or screen down. Now, this is an oversimplification. Like I said, please yell at me. Um, just flipping your phone doesn't actually put it into a superposition of being in those states. But the point remains, your phone is not going to end up on its side. It's going to be either face up or face down. And it's not going to be in some combination of those. It's not going to be somewhere in between. When you observe it, it can only be in one of those two states. That's like a qubit. It, when you observe it, it collapses down into one state. Okay. This causes some issues. There's this thing called quantum decoherence. Um, these are This is unwanted collapses. So what we want to do is we want to keep those qubits in superposition, so they're in a combination of multiple states all at the same time, except not really, and we want to keep it that way until we want to get the data out of it, and then we want to collapse it into one of those states. However, quantum decoherence is over time, 
there will be unwanted collapses that just happen randomly and naturally because of noise in the system, basically. This causes errors in the program. If you think that a qubit is in a superposition, but it's not, and you do a operation on it, like a logical gate, it's going to get you a different answer than you thought it would. This is why we run thousands of the same program over and over and over again. If you look at the IBM Q experience online, you can look it up, there's, there's a, it shows you how many shots it runs. Typically that number is going to be something like um, 1024, a multiple of two, uh, a power of two that's really big. This is because we don't know which of those runs is going to have an error. If you just ran it once, there's a possibility that it gives you the right answer. But there's also a possibility that that quantum decoherence happens, you get unwanted errors in the program, and it creates this sec like second layer of probability where you have the probability of the superpositions, but then you also have the probability of your machine basically crashing, like getting an error in a classical program that comes from like a high energy particle causing a bit flip, like weird things that happen every once in a while. So that's why we need multiple physical qubits to make a logical qubit. When you hear that, say, um, IBM has a 50 qubit quantum chip, that doesn't mean that they can actually do what 50 qubits could do in a theoretically perfect world. Some of those qubits have to be used as error-correcting qubits, and that's a whole other field of quantum computing that we're not going to get into today, um, but could be a future episode topic. Um, these quantum, qu quantum error-correcting qubits are used specifically. They don't like do the calculations. They just make sure that that everything stays in superposition and that you get fewer errors. So if you get all of these errors and you can only run a small program because you know the longer your program goes on, the more likely this quantum decoherence is to happen. So you've got to keep your programs short. Um, why use quantum computing? What's the, what's the whole point? So the whole point is that the weirdness of superposition allows you to manipulate probabilities. So going back to what I said about superpositions being probabilities, um, not that it is in all of these states all at the same time, but that it has a probability of collapsing into the two different states. So with quantum mechanics, we're able to manipulate those probabilities. So if you wanted to, um, let's say you just you put it in a superposition exactly 50-50 between 0 and 1. You can apply quantum gates, you can change the probabilities over time to bring that closer and closer to being 100% probability of being 1. Of course, you can just make it a 1, but that's boring. Why would you want to do that? You want to bring it as a superposition. It still has a chance of being 0, but it gets closer and closer to being 1. Well, let's say 1's our correct answer we can use those gates. Let's say that the probability is all the way down here at, it's like 75% probability of being zero. We want to get it to one. We can apply those gates to slowly bring it up to being closer and closer to one. That gives us a better and better chance of having the correct answer for our program. That's interesting. 
because it's not that we're saying one's our correct answer. It's just saying, you know, move the probabilities up. So let's let's dig into that a bit. So probabilities in quantum mechanics are waves. Um, maybe you've heard of the um, Schrodinger wave equation. This is um, basically a a way of saying the probability that a particle has of being in certain states. So in other words, the probability that a qubit has of being in different states. And that that equation maps out a wave. And if you know anything about waves, like classical waves, if you've been on the beach, there's constructive and destructive interference of waves. So with the beach analogy, let's say that a beach a wave just broke on the beach, and it comes in, and it starts going back out, and then another wave comes in. Well, that second wave is going to be smaller than it would have been if there wasn't that first wave going back, sort of working against it. And then the same thing can happen in reverse, where let's say you have a wave come in, and as it's still coming in, a faster-moving, bigger wave comes in and gets to sort of right on the top and goes further, they both go further than either one would have gone on its own. So that first example is destructive interference, where the waves sort of clash against each other and cause smaller waves. The second one is constructive interference, where the waves build each other up. And you can look up really nice visuals of this. Um, there are some really cool, if you look up like uh, Desmos constructive and destructive interference of waves, um, there's a really cool like graphical it shows you anyways side topic so when we apply quantum logic gates oftentimes what we are doing is we are applying operations to the waveforms of qubits so what does that mean that means that we are manipulating the probabilities those waveforms equals probabilities so if we're able to change what the waves look like we can change what the probabilities are. And so, you know, waves have a period and an amplitude. And if those periods line up and the amplitudes where the, the peaks are line up, you get that constructive interference. And if they line up where a peak and a trough line up, you get that destructive interference. And we can use these gates that are basically like adding a wave to another wave. So the, the qubit has its own wave, and then the gate is another wave we add on top of it. And that, there's different parts that will be added, different parts that will be subtracted. And because of that, we can use really clever versions of that to, without knowing the exact waveforms of the qubits, take the, make operations that take the qubits that we want and making them better, the qubits that we don't want, those uh, the, the states of the superpositions of the qubits that we don't want, making it less likely, that destructive interference, that they'll be in there. Okay, so to recap, probabilities in quantum mechanics are waves. There's constructive and destructive interference of waves. When that's constructive, we get a bigger chance of that qubit particle being in that state. And if it's destructive, we get a lower chance. And we can apply waveforms to the waveforms of qubits in order to manipulate those probabilities 
and make it more and more likely that we get the answer we want. That's pretty cool. So, this, the, yeah. There's a really good in-depth video from Minute Physics. There's a link in the show notes about this topic. And, yeah, I, I won't say anything more about that. Go check it out. It's all about Shor's algorithm, which is a really popular, um, well-known application of quantum computing and quantum mechanics. So this is all stuff that we can't do with classical computers. We can simulate it, but it takes a lot of processing power. Um, and there gets to be a point where the amount of processing power we have to simulate it becomes more than we can we can actually do with the physical classical computers that we have today. Um, and it generally takes longer than if you just tried to do the computations that you wanted the simulated quantum computer to do. So it's it's not really practical to do that. So that's why we need quantum computers. Quantum computers can do things that classical computers can never do. So just mention Shor's algorithm. Shor's algorithm is a part of the reason that everyone is freaking out about quantum computing killing off cryptography. So let's let's dive into that. We can look at a practical application of quantum computing to factoring numbers. So a little brief background in how standard cryptography works today. So factoring numbers is really hard for a classical computer. So let's say I took two random uh, prime numbers and multiplied them together. I'm going to do that right now. Okay, my number is 221. Okay, now you have to find the two um, prime factors of 221. It's kind of small, so you might be able to do it. If you want to pause this, as long as you're not like driving, go ahead and try to find the two prime factors of 221. It's really hard, because if you're doing it like a computer would, you have to look through every single number and see, do these numbers multiply to these numbers? Every, every single number up to the, um, sorry, no, you have to look at every single number up to the number you're given. So if the number you're given is n, n is 221, you have to look at every single number up to, say, 220, and see at every single number up to 220, does every single number up to 220 find the one that equals 221? So, for instance, if I was trying to, let's, let's do a, a, a simpler example, 3 and 5. 3 times 5 is 15. So those are my two numbers you're looking for. If you're a classical computer, you're looking at, okay, 1 times 1. Nope, not 15. 1 times 2. Nope, not 15. 1 times 3. And you've got to keep going. And because you're going all the way up to 15, I mean, you're going to find it before you hit there. But worst case scenario, that's a n squared algorithm. That means it takes ridiculously long as the numbers get really big. As, you know, if you didn't pause, you're probably still trying to find those two numbers I multiplied together to get 221. Um, there just isn't a way to do it fast. The fastest algorithms we have at this that work every single time are O of n squared. If you know big O notation, that'll make sense. Just it means that in the worst case scenario, the time it takes is equal to the square 
of the number that you're given. So what we use is called SHA-256 encryption. SHA, S-H-A, is, stands for, I'm looking it up right now because I actually don't know, uh, Secure Hash Algorithm. No, that makes sense. SHA-256 uses 256 bits. So 256 bits, the highest number that you can um, display with 256 bits is 1.16 times 10 to the 77th. Um, for some, that's 2 to the 256 is the number. For some context, I believe that the number of atoms in the universe, the best estimate we have right now, is 2 to the 80th. So you're literally able to display more numbers. The, the biggest number is more than there are atoms in the universe. So it's crazy hard. Um, the, with all of the computers we have today combined, all working on the problem of factoring SHA-256, it would take longer than the age of the universe to factor a single number, um, a, a single pair of numbers. And at that point, everyone's dead. It doesn't matter anymore. So that's what we use for everything from banking to government secrets to your private information that you don't want anyone seeing especially not your parents on your instagram um <laughs> but here's where it gets good factoring numbers is ridiculously easy for a quantum computing a quantum computer using shor's algorithm which the minute physics video talks about seriously go check it out really good it's ridiculously easy I mean, the algorithm itself is complicated, but once you have the algorithm implemented, it you can just you can find it like that, with a snap of a finger, you know, make everything perfectly balanced as all things should be. So, with with all of this in mind, you don't need either factor, using Shor's algorithm. You can use a quantum computer to find both factors, really fast. And that means, like I said, bank information, government secrets, your private information is all insecure. Not right now, because we don't have quantum computers that can do this. We don't, they don't have enough qubits. But if you had enough qubits, then it's all, all of that cryptography is broken. Um, we don't really know when it's going to happen that quantum computers will be able to factor, say, SHA-256. Some people say it's going to happen next year. Some people say 50 years. There's a broad range of estimates. But everyone's in agreement. It's going to happen. So what do we do then? There are ways to encrypt and decrypt information that you want to keep safe that are quantum safe. But they aren't widely used. Uh, that's a future episode topic which we're not going to get into right now. But this is this points to why quantum computing is so important and why we need to get it right and really educate everyone about quantum computing. You don't need to know the nitty-gritty. You don't need to know necessarily that qubits are in a superposition of states. It's not actually continuous. It's more like weird continuous and that, you know, it's not... It looks through every single possible outcome and then finds the right one and then gives you the right answer. It's more complicated than that, but not everyone needs to know that. What everyone does need to know is that this is going to change how we view computing, 
how we view science. There are applications like, for instance, Bitcoin. If you're investing in Bitcoin, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> Bitcoin uses SHA to keep the, the money supply uh, from being in everyone, uh, one person's hands. In order, to, in order to get a new Bitcoin made, people are factoring bigger and bigger numbers. Um, not to put them in a database, just as a way of rewarding people um, who use their GPUs to factor these numbers to make new Bitcoin because you need to gradually increase your monetary supply because of economic reasons. That's not what this podcast is about. Um, but what that means is if you have a quantum computer, you can just own all the Bitcoin. In order to control the supply of the Bitcoin, um, you have you just have to be faster, your computer to be faster than the next best computer and a quantum computer factoring with Shor's algorithm is going to be faster than a classical GPU rig every single time and that means you can get you can do weird things like double spend your bitcoins so bitcoin is not quantum safe you know within the next 50 years bitcoin is going to be dead for all intents and purposes because it's not quantum safe so, yeah, this impacts everyone. Whether you use Bitcoin or not, whether you use, you have private information online or not, your, your government's secrets are going to become not safe. So, like I said, there are ways to encrypt and decrypt. That's a future episode topic, which I'm definitely going to get into because people need to know about this. I'm a, not only am I a quantum computing nut, I'm also a uh, security encryption nut. So, yeah, I I think it's important, you know, like, share, subscribe. Basically, all of this is a big ploy for me to plug my show, Quantum Computing Now, share it with your friends, tell them about the future, <laughs> all that good stuff. So, yeah, that's, a, that's pretty much a wrap-up on that introduction to quantum computing. Uh, people who know better than me about all this stuff, please, please correct me by sending in a voice message on Anchor. There should be a link in the description, unless you're listening on Anchor, in which case go to my profile, or tweeting me at one Ethan Hansen. Also, go ahead and uh, send me information one of those ways. If there's something I didn't cover well, or that you have more questions on, or you've got an idea for a future episode topic, all that good stuff. Um, at the end of these videos, there will be a listener sorry, not videos, episodes, there will be a listener question and previous episode correction portion, which we'll jump into right now. There aren't any previous episode corrections per se, but I would like to add to the who question I answered in that last episode, episode zero, the pilot, go watch, listen to that now. Um, I answered who I am, but never talked about who you are. I really don't know all of you, don't worry, I'm not that creepy, but I do know who this podcast is going to be made for. There are two types of audience that this show will be mainly targeted at. First, the casual enthusiast slash student, someone who's just interested in quantum computing, maybe learning about it at school, learning about it on their own, wants a podcast audio version of the information that they could get elsewhere. So that's the, that's the first category. 
Second, you'll have more like quantum computing professionals, people who have been practicing for a while. They want to know about the latest and greatest in quantum computing, and they want to hear it from a bratty kid online. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so how, you may ask, will I make this for both disparate set of listeners? So that's where the three types of episodes comes in. So you may remember from the pilot episode, we'll have basic episodes that are for that first group. And interview episodes are more for professionals. Um, we'll be interviewing professionals, made for professionals. Wow. And then we'll have news episodes that are for really both groups. So if you're interested in quantum computing, you want to be keeping up on what's new in quantum computing. You'll be able to understand some of it. And if you're a professional quantum computing researcher, you also want to be keeping up on the new stuff, and you'll probably understand the majority of it. Of course, everyone is welcome to listen to whatever episode they want. This is just my idea of what's going to be most helpful slash useful to whom. All right, let's move on to some questions. Now for listener questions. So since I just started this podcast, there aren't really quote-unquote listeners, but I do have a younger brother who's sort of interested in this stuff, likes computing, doesn't know very much about quantum computing, and so he has some questions for me to see if I can answer them. Well, actually, just one question. What causes quantum decoherence? Which is a very good question. I hadn't actually thought about it myself until he asked. I just sort of was like, oh, yeah, quantum decoherence happens when qubits either get too hot or interact with the environment in some way, but why does it matter? Why don't we want them to interact with the environment? What happens? And that's still an active topic of discussion inside the quantum computing and quantum physics world, but here's what I think is a plausible and reasonable answer. So, quantum systems need to be isolated from their environment because contact with the environment causes quantum decoherence. We already talked about this a little bit. This is why quantum computers are chilled to near absolute zero, using what's called dilution refrigeration most of the time, um, which is really cool. might be a topic in and of itself, um, more on the like hardware side than the actual like computing side. Super cool stuff. Um, it chills it colder than outer space, which is just mind-blowing. It's hard to comprehend exactly how cold it gets. Um, but what exactly, why exactly does it matter if the temperature gets too warm or the qubits interact with the environment? Well, when that happens, when the qubits interact with their environment, information from in the environment leaks into the qubits, and information from inside the qubits leaks out into the environment. And we don't want that, because that information that leaks out most likely was needed for a future computation or a current computation, and the information that leaks in is just sort of random noise. So a, a good analogy that I found is like with uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Um, entropy is going to increase. So if you have a bath, and the bath is cold, and you have a piece of metal that's hot, and you put the hot metal in the cold bath, then they're going to try to equalize their temperature. And that same sort of thing happens with the, quant with the information in the quantum system and the outside environment. That outside environment could be anything from, you know, a tiny, tiny nanoparticle to just, like, the world in general, 
or even a stray photon, um, high energy cosmic ray. So yeah, um, with going back to the bath analogy, the temperature of the hot metal is going to decrease and the temperature of the cold bath is going to increase. The temperature, the, the heat from inside the hot metal is leaking out into the environment and the cold from out in the environment is leaking into the metal. So the temperature of the metal decreases, temperature of the bath increases, and they sort of share information that way in this analogy. So the obvious thing you would say is, well, if we don't want the qubits to interact with their environment, why don't we just make them perfectly isolated? We just like suspend them out in space and we don't have anything touching them. They just sort of like orbit and that's, that's it. Um, then the question is, how do you interact with them to put them into quantum superpositions and then later measure them? So it's sort of a necessary evil to have the qubits in some amount of contact with their environment, but we can reduce the amount of contact by putting them in shielding enclosures and chilling those because the, the vibrations um, will are, are decreased as you get closer and closer to absolute zero. That's what temperature is, basically just how much molecules and atoms are moving. And the less movement, the less likely that that movement you know, hits the qubits. Anyhow, so yeah, we can't do perfect coherence, uh, perfect coherence and perfectly isolated qubits because like even out in space with the orbiting qubit example, you would have high energy cosmic rays or photons or particles hitting it every once in a while. So there's really no perfect coherence. So what you have to do is find that right balance to keep good coherence and also good ability to measure. So when we want to measure, decoherence is good, otherwise it's bad. Because when you when you measure, you're going to collapse the superposition. And basically what that is, when you're measuring and you want to measure, it's controlled decoherence. Um, so yeah, there necessarily has to be some risk of unwanted interactions to have any interaction whatsoever. Another way to think about this. So let's say you have a quantum system, an arbitrary number of particles or qubits, and you know how to write the waveforms of those particles' probabilities perfectly. That was, uh, you know, always avoid alliteration. Uh, You're able to perfectly write down the probability distributions of those individual particles. So you know exactly what probabilities they're in at any time. But then an unknown system comes and interacts with one or more of those qubits or particles. Now you don't know. You are not able to um, perfectly say, here's the probabilities, because you don't know what the probabilities of the parts that interacted with it, and therefore you don't know the now combined probabilities. So if you could say before that your view of the probabilities, because you were able to perfectly write down the waveforms, if at that point you could say that your view was coherent, now your view of those particles is decohered. So hopefully one of those explanations helps you think about quantum decoherence, why it happens, 
and why we would want it to not happen, and times that we do want it to happen, say when we're measuring a quantum particle, a qubit, and we want to get useful information out of it. And to finish this podcast up, we've got some further resources. In the show notes, I have links to two games that I really like, both having to do with quantum computing. Both of those games are puzzle games, so if that's not really your thing, maybe stay away from it, or give it a try. Maybe it will be your thing. You never know. The first game is Hello Quantum, a game about different quantum gates and how they manipulate qubits. This is an interesting way the qubits and their interactions are displayed graphically, and it's just a nice-looking game in general. It's... Yeah, go check it out. It's available on Apple and Android. The second game is Dekodoku, spelled D-E-C-O-D-O-K-U. The game was created by a quantum computing researcher, and it can teach you about quantum error correction. Also, you can teach the researchers about quantum error correction. If you play and come up with a really good strategy, you can give your data to the researchers, and they can use that to better perform quantum error correction. Both of these games are addicting and fun. Even if I didn't care about quantum computing, I would probably spend hours playing them without blinking. Hashtag not sponsored. Um, They probably don't have any money to sponsor me anyways. Um, The links to the game's websites are in the show notes, and each is available on Apple and Android. Dekodoku is also available as a web browser game. Seriously, go check them out. This has been Quantum Computing Now. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you in two to four weeks.